Good evening. We want to welcome you back this evening and appreciate your attendance tonight as we think about some lessons from Luke. As we begin to do that, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been uninvited? Have you ever been in a place where you shouldn't have been? Uh, maybe you wanted to be, but you had not been expressly invited. I, I know all of us have been invited at some point. This is a time of year where we get lots of uh, invitations to graduation parties and and uh, various events happening kind of in this season of life. You've probably been invited, but but have you been ever to a place where you weren't invited? I have one very specific time I can remember. I was in fourth grade, I think, and uh, the word on the street, as the street were, in fourth grade was that Mario was having a birthday party, and it was to be quite the affair for fourth graders. I didn't know the, um, shall we say, the etiquette involved in birthday parties and so on and so forth, so I just heard that Mario was having a birthday party, and it was Saturday, and so I told my mom, Mom, Mario's having a birthday party on Saturday, and I'd like to go. Now, whether I phrased it that way, or some, some, in some way, somehow, I phrased it in a way that it sort of flew under her radar. She said, okay, birthday party, I'll, you know, I'll just take him there. And I went. And it was, it was great fun for me, <laughs> although um, I had not been invited to Mario's birthday party. Audacious little lad that I was just sort of invited myself to the fun. And I recall later, sort of toward the end of the party, one of the other kids saying, you know, were, were you really invited? And I thought, well, why wouldn't I be invited? I mean, obviously. But I had to learn that lesson the hard way, uh, just learning you know, the etiquette of birthday parties and all of that. Maybe you've had a similar experience, or maybe your rank was much higher in fourth grade than mine was. But as we think about invitations and being uninvited, tonight I want to take you to a party a dinner party where Jesus was the guest of honor. We're going to look at this very interesting story and its applications for us. As per normal, we are in Luke chapter 7. As you turn there, I want to take just a moment to remind this crowd that planned for next Sunday night is the Sunday night after church meal. Uh, it is to be a sandwich supper. Uh, Pat and Angie Weber are organizing that. They have a sign-up list at the activities corner. Angie told me this morning that there's only three families signed up. And she said, I understand it's you know graduation season, a lot of interruptions, and maybe people just can't go. But she said, if we don't have many more sign up, we'll probably just postpone for May. And so she put a post on the a group on Facebook, she asked me to send out a text message, and I'm telling you tonight. So you've been told and told and retold, no excuse. If you're going to be there next Sunday night, if you can attend and would like to, please sign up this evening. Uh, that is the way you're invited. See how I work that in there? You get that sort of preaching jujitsu on Sunday night. That's not a Sunday morning thing. We are in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. The scene is a dinner party, which was 
a, an occasion that was frequent in that culture, as it sometimes is in ours, but it was different, and it was done for a certain reason and a, a certain occasion. Uh, we find this story, by the way, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so we are sure that it happens. Now, whether all of those dinner parties were exactly the same, there's some debate about that because there's some details that are different from story to story. Some st- Distinct differences like time and location. There are some similarities in terms of what happens, but this may have happened on more than one occasion. This may have been different, a different viewpoint of the same event. We just don't know. But what we see in the story, as we'll go through it, has some lessons for us. So let's head over to the dinner party at the home of a certain Pharisee. We are in chapter 7, verse 36 and following. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of the, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, Jesus, as, as we see throughout all of the gospel accounts in his ministries, he, especially as he rose in popularity, became the guest of many more dinner parties. And those dinner parties, although Jesus was the guest of honor, he was often invited for different reasons. They were not always good reasons. He was invited here to the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And the Pharisees, Luke has already told us in chapter 6, verse 7, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse him. And so they watched him closely. They're having this dinner party with Jesus. He's the guest of honor. But they're not there to honor them. They're they're not honor him. They're not here to hear from him. Maybe they are, but but this is a gotcha kind of affair. They they, they would have invited the, the dignitaries, the royalties, the religious leaders of that culture. And likely, since it's at a Pharisee's home, it was for the express purpose of catching him, of tripping him up. Um, I don't know if we've had anything in current events where someone in high power has been invited before a committee and, and the purpose intended was to get information from that person, but that wasn't the real purpose. The real purpose was to try to trip that person up. That probably doesn't happen in our day, but back in this day, those things did happen. The meal itself was an event, and if you study... You know, the, the, the sort of the Jewish dinner party, there was, you know, a, a, a ceremonial washings, a seating that happened, an arrangement of the foods, uh, a, a particular way of doing, uh, uh, announcing uh, the people who are there and the people and, and the, who could ask questions and how the dinner conversation went. So th- there was, there was a, a, a process to it. This was an important, and and then someone unimportant to them showed up. A woman with an undeniable reputation, referred to simply in the text as a sinner, 
a woman of that city in the ESV. Um, who was she? If you read some commentaries, if you've heard sermons on this before, some people speculate this is a woman named Mary Magdalene. Uh, all of that is pure speculation. There's really not any textual proof. You could argue it either way. It could have been, it could not have been, will not take a stance on either side of that event, but this woman had a reputation uh, that had been soiled. This was a, a woman who, when she came into the city, when she came into a business, when you, she came into your home, and certainly when she came to this lavish affair that you have planned, everyone instantly knew that she was not welcome. And yet, despite not being invited, this woman audaciously crashes the party. Why? And what? That takes courage to do. Uh, that takes some audacity to, to just take go into a, a place where you clearly don't belong, where everyone in the room is judging you and prejudging you and overjudging you. Well, why? Why, did, why would she take such a step? A couple of reasons. Number one, she had nothing left to lose, clearly. When you're at a point when you have nothing left to lose, it changes your perspective. When, when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, when, when you have hit your rock bottom, you begin to behave differently because you have total clarity now. The other was, not only did she have nothing to lose, she had something to offer this guest named Jesus. The, the scriptures tell us that at the midst of this dinner, she stood behind Jesus with this alabaster flask of ointment, this perfume, this very expensive perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, a a couple of things to point out here. I, I don't know about you. I, I get a little uncomfortable when people cry, and I'm sorry if you've cried around me. I've certainly cried up here in front of you, and 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 there's just something offsetting when you get to that emotional point because you're realizing that they're experiencing something, and and you are not at that point, and you are there with them. And certainly in this public setting, this woman is crying. <clears throat> My personal belief is she had a penitent heart, and they were so in that sense they were tears of sadness, and she knew that Jesus was her hope and her only opportunity to find true forgiveness, and so they were also tears of joy. You can cry for different reasons, and this woman may have been crying. Uh, for two different reasons at the same time. Second Corinthians chapter seven verse ten. Apostle Paul wrote this, and he said specifically that godly grief produces... Is there somebody else preaching in here? What's happening? For godly grief, he's still going. It's just like the regular preacher, isn't he? Are you recording me and playing it back? Is that, is that how this is working? Are we watching me in real time? Somebody's watching the live stream while they're here. Just to, Okay, sorry. When you have a preacher with ADD, that just is, you, you're going to get me off track. Where are we? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Um, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. 
whereas worldly grief produces death. Isn't this interesting that Paul, and I'm not going to go into the context of everything he's talking about here, but, but he points out that there's a different kind of way to grieve for your sin. One is godly. This, this is that... This is that when you think about your life at some time in the past, sometime maybe before Jesus, or maybe when you were very immature in Jesus, or maybe just a few weeks ago, and you think back about something that you did, and your, your gut reaction is, oh, I wish I hadn't have done that. Like when I think about Mario's birthday party in fourth grade, to this day, I still go, ah, I wish I hadn't done that. It was embarrassing. Okay. When you look back on something you've done and you go, ah, I wish I hadn't done that, that's good. That shows maturity. That shows that you are, have a right, a better way of thinking about it now than you did then. Godly grief produces repentance, and that repentance leads to salvation. If you'll follow it, and I realize we live in a world that's you should have no guilt, no shame, nobody does anything wrong. <laughs> the Bible says, listen, all of us mess up, and the proper response to that is godly sorrow. And that godly sorrow produces repentance, and which means a turning of the heart, a desire to change. And that when, you're, when your heart gets there, something happens. Paul says, it leads to to salvation without regret. So there are good times to be sad over your sin and sad over where you've been. And that's where this woman is. Not that we should stay there, but if we'll let that repentance lead us to salvation, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is, I'm sorry I got caught. I'll think next time how to do it in a way where no one will catch me. That's the most dangerous kind of grief there is. Because now you're becoming that calloused heart, not responsive to sin at all. So in this woman, we see godly sorrow and repentance. And we know if she stays on that track, it's going to lead to salvation. The second thing that we see in addition to her tears is the washing of Jesus' feet with her hair. Just on the surface, that's a rather disgusting act. I mean, I, I really can't think, you know, when you think of, of your body, generally the stinkiest, dirtiest, most disgusting part of your body tends to be your feet. When you wash them, they tend to be the last that are washed, and as you step out of the shower, the tub, they're the first things to get dirty. They bear the brunt of your weight. Uh, and, and this is just in this culture. Back in that culture where they didn't have, you know, sewage systems, people threw the gross stuff right out in the street. People walked in open sandals. The feet were disgusting. Washing feet was a big deal. And this woman washes the feet of Jesus in what for her would have been the best and probably most attractive and noticeable part of her body was her, her hair. Ladies, think about your own hair and how you wash it, tend it, take care of it, 
color it, style it, mess with it, smell it. I mean, a hair, your hair is so much a part of a woman's identity, and this was absolutely the case in this culture as well. And she, in this beautiful act, gives her the very best part of herself to wash and to serve the very least of Jesus. That shows great humility. The perfume that she brings is very costly. So this woman sees Jesus, repents, has a heart of repentance, and makes a costly sacrifice. All of this in response to the mercy that he had shown her. Then the uninvited guest did something quite unexpected. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known what type, who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, uh, The one, I suppose, for whom he had canceled the larger debt. And he, and, and he said to him, You have judged rightly. Now, we all know and understand that Pharisees don't do well with surprises. Pharisees like things a certain way, in a certain order. And no doubt, there was a plan for this evening. It was supposed to go in a certain way, maybe even people planning to ask Jesus, sort of drill in and figure out what he believed, get him to say something that they consider to be heresy, embarrass him in front of everyone. And instead, this woman comes in and crashes the party. And so Pharisees do what Pharisees do, and that is when they are surprised, they criticize. First, they criticize Jesus. <laughs> if this man were a prophet... Second, they criticize her. Ah, He would know what kind of woman this is. And then he he calls out that that this woman is not only who she is, and uh, clearly Jesus is an idiot, but she's touching him. She's touching him. Uh, The implication is, do you know how many people have touched this woman? And in what ways and for what reason? And do you know now she is touching you? This woman clearly is unclean. And you, a rabbi, are letting this woman touch you? There was a a part of it that was bound up in the law about clean and unclean. But what we see here is what we've seen here again again and again in Luke is that instead of an unclean thing or person defiling some a a person who touches that, which was the which is the way they treated it, in, in every single instance in Luke. When an unclean person touches Jesus, it doesn't make Jesus unclean. Instead, the power comes out from Jesus and changes that which is unclean. Now, now, of course, Simon doesn't understand that. But with Jesus, everything changes. It goes in the opposite 
direction. And so, since the Pharisee did what the Pharisees do and criticize, Jesus did what he did best. He told a story. He says, I want to tell you about two men, both owed a debt. Uh, now, to understand the, the, the debt, just think of a denarii as a single day's wage, okay? And it's hard to judge debt because when you're speaking to an audience, you have a, a variety of debts and a variety of incomes. So, to, so, so for you to understand it, I want you to think about how much money you tend to make on an average day. I'm not talking about days when you get bonuses, but just a, a normal day, you would expect that you would make this much. Now, maybe you get paid every two weeks, every month or so forth, but, you know, do the math and kind of figure out what your daily rate is. You got that number? All right, Jesus says there's two guys, and one of them had a large debt, equivalent to two years, effectively, of his salary. The other one had a, a small debt, equal to about two months of salary. Both of those are unable to repay. Both of those debts forgiven. Which one do you think appreciated it more? Now put that into your context. Take two years' salary. Figure that you owe that to a credit card company or to a bank or something. And you are unable to repay. You've received several notices and there's no money to be had. So the collectors start calling and, and then you're put on lists. And, and it just, just takes you through a vicious, rotten cycle. Take it now that you, have, you owe two months of your salary and, and the same pay. You're unable to pay. You're on the bill collector's list. And in both cases... Uh, it just happens to be that the, the, both the debts are owed at your local Kansas bank, where Brent Groves, the gracious banker that he is, just says, hey, it's been a good year for me. You know, would you just write this off and write that off? I'm not vouching that Brent will do this, okay, but just... Which of you would appreciate Brent more the next time you saw him at church? Uh, obviously, the answer doesn't even need to be given. The one with the larger one. You'd respond very differently. Now, now maybe the one with the smaller debt would still appreciate it and still you know, multiple thanks, but, but there's a deeper level when you're at such a level that you could never, ever even hope to repay it back. Why? Because the size of their indebtedness. And Jesus is, Jesus is making a very subtle but very direct point. And here it is. Instead of being embarrassed at this woman's audacious offering, the Pharisee should have been embarrassed for his lack of an offering. You see, the woman, who they didn't know other than her reputation, that woman knew something that they didn't know. And that was this. She knew how much she truly owed and how very deeply she was unable to repay. 
You see, when you owe just a little bit, you begin to think, well, you know, if I just worked a little harder, got a second job, I probably could handle it. I probably still could maintain things. But when you realize that you are so much in debt that it is beyond even thinking of being able to pay in your lifetime, you understand how much, how deeply indebted you are to the one who forgives the debt. And then, Jesus puts the question back to Simon. Who would you think would love him more? Mm, He's getting pointed. And so we see two responses from Jesus. One is admonishing, and the other is, well, Let's, let's work on the admonishing. The question starts in verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? We start with that rhetorical question. Do you see this woman? Obviously it was rhetorical. Everyone in the room had seen her. Perhaps even they smelled the perfume before she got to the door. Perhaps they got a glimpse. No, it couldn't be her. She wouldn't dare show her face at a party like this amongst all of us with him. No way. But there she came through the door, ignoring every single possible social etiquette And she went to Jesus and cried and offered and washed and served. But maybe Jesus wasn't asking it that way. Do you see this woman? Maybe he was, maybe he was going to Simon. Sorry, you're Simon tonight, Ryan. Maybe he was going to Ryan and Simon and saying, Do you see this woman? Do you understand the difference? Here was a man who claimed to be close to God, who did all of the godly things, and yet here was a daughter of the king created by God with his image and his spirit, and he would as soon ignored her and walked as far away on the other side of the street as he possibly could. He did everything possible to ignore him. He was not interested in her redemption. He was only interested in her condemnation. And Jesus flipped that radically. He was not interested as much in one's condemnation as the idea that one could be redeemed and saved. You see, Jesus saw her. He saw, in fact, more than her. He saw 
her heart, which was evidenced by her actions. And then, this is the really cool part, Jesus admonishes a Pharisee in the language of a Pharisee. Oh, this is really good. He, he, he made, he began to speak the native language of Pharisees, which is making a list. And he just reads the riot act right back to him. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, did you catch what what happened here? What Jesus just did in his sort of rabbi-esque sort of way? He took a man who loved to keep lists about other people, and Jesus did the exact same thing to him. Oh, you like lists? Well, let's talk about lists, shall we? Now, I don't know if you've ever hosted a dinner party. If you had people over to your house, imagine how you would feel as the host if someone who you had invited maybe even the guest of honor, begin to point out all of the wrong things with your party. You know, this meat's a little undercooked. This dish is a little overcooked. Goodness, you didn't take my coat when you came in the door. Now, imagine the shrinking feeling that Simon begins to get as the host of this party, and Jesus just lays it on him again and again and again. What he's doing to him is what he is doing to her and many other people like her. I love how Jesus can get on the level of Pharisees and speak Phariseeism. Ah, you want to talk about keeping up with a list? Well, let's talk about your list, Simon. Let's talk about what all you didn't do. Maybe he's making the point that under the righteous standard of God and Jesus himself, no one, no one gets it 100%. This is a Pharisee. This was a Pharisee who prided himself on keeping the law. Jesus would later say of the Pharisees that they tithed on their spice rack. Like they would, they would look at the spices that they have and give a tenth of that. They were that legalistic. And yet Jesus can find stuff on the list that ways in which he himself didn't measure up. All of these things, by the way, were huge social faux pas. And Jesus is pointing them out, probably because he understood that this wasn't a real dinner party, okay? They they didn't really want to honor Jesus. They only wanted to embarrass Jesus. All of these things, the water and the kiss and the anointing with oil, these were basic etiquette of a dinner party at the time. And what what Simon had lacked to do was a huge embarrassment to him. Did Jesus do that just to embarrass him? I think Jesus did that to point out that that maybe when you make a list for other people, maybe when they don't meet up your list, and maybe when you spend all of your time pointing out how little they measure up to your standards, how little it makes you feel. You see, he hadn't been used to feeling that way. He was he was friends with all the list makers. He knew all the listy ways to do. He knew the right things to do. But when Jesus pointed him it out, he surely was embarrassed. And she, she did more than just offer him. She offered him the best, her tears, her hair, her best ointment. She gave the very best of what she could. She loved greatly because she understood she had been forgiven greatly. 
the obvious unspoken here is a message to Simon, and that is this. Simon, your love for me is very, very shallow, and it shows. And I can pick on Simon, but when I turn the mirror of God's word toward me, I have to ask myself the question, have there ever been times when Jesus would judge my love toward him as quite shallow? Because I do not give the very best. I do not go the extra mile because I do not make the extra sacrifice. My heart becomes very okay with Jesus paying my debt. And there's no gratitude, no love, no appreciation. We have to be careful with that. Or we too can develop a Pharisee's heart. Then he graciously speaks three promises to her. Your sins are forgiven. Now remember, in a couple of chapters ago, in chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus himself said, Who can forgive sins but God alone? He offered her the simple act of being able to forgive that which only he could forgive. So he gives her reassurance. That's the first thing. The second is he says, your faith has saved you. He offers her restoration. Not just assurance, but restoration. That you're now not an unclean sinner, but that you're saved. And then he says, go in peace. He offers her reconciliation. So assurance and restoration and reconciliation. There is something about the peace of God that only the peace of God can provide from being reconciled unto God. So, so see here what, what was happening in the story. From the woman now, faith, godly sorrow, repentance. It led to salvation and forgiveness and her loving outpouring, overflowing response to her Savior. May we then learn the lesson that Simon did not. That is to love much. That woman's love that she poured out to Jesus, I don't think was to, I mean, certainly she was granted it, but I think, she was giving that offering as a response to his mercy, as a response to what only he could do. Have you made an offering lately? Have you offered to Jesus your tears of repentance? Or do you just keep wallowing in sin, going back to old things and struggling and do you do you just keep holding on to things that you know are not what God wants for you have you offered him your very best i mean when you worship when you pray when you sing is it your best or is it what will get by have you, have you made any sacrifice toward Jesus that was costly to you. I like to think about that Jesus left 
this dinner party smelling better and looking cleaner than when he went in. And that's a strange thought. But this woman had the pleasing fragrance of peace with God and forgiveness for her sins which she could not repay. Can we love? How can, how can we possibly love like she did? Well, maybe we consider what he did. As we consider his love, may we respond in love. We respond, for John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. So, as we consider that, I want to close tonight with a song. This is not the invitation, okay? But I just want to take a part of this lesson and sing a song and I, I'm going to ask you, if you can, if you know the song well enough, to close your eyes and bring a sacrifice of praise to your Lord and to your Savior. If you don't know the song well enough, keep your eyes open, but focus on the words and not anyone else. This is a collective worship, I understand, but, but really, I, I just for, for just this song, I want you to go back into that moment, into that dinner party, and invite yourself audaciously and sing to your Lord. Ryan will lead us now in the song, Wonderful, Merciful Savior. Wonderful, merciful Savior, Precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Oh, you rescue the souls of men, Counselor, Comforter, Keeper, Spirit we long to embrace. You lost our way. Oh, we've hopelessly lost the way. You are the one that we praise. You are the one we adore. You give the healing and grace. Our hearts always hunger for. Oh, always hunger for. Almighty infinite Father, faithfully loving your own, here in our weakness you find us falling before your throne. Oh, My hope and my prayer is that you sang that song with sincerity and that you keep that song in your heart.
May we not forget, though Simon intended to teach Jesus about the uninvited woman who taught Simon, maybe even taught Jesus a few things too. The scripture tells us that as Jesus breathed his last, the final words which he said in our translations were the words, it is finished. However, in the original language, that was not three words, but rather one. The Greek word, tetelesta. That simple yet powerful word means one thing, paid in full. That your debt and my debt, no matter how great or how small, was paid totally and completely in full at the cross. Given to you not long before you knew you even needed it. Now, that's called grace. God's unmerited favor. There's nothing you could do to earn it. If you are ready to respond to it, if you are ready to take hold of that grace, to embrace Jesus audaciously, as the woman did, and Jesus said simply, you need to believe and be immersed into Jesus, into himself for the forgiveness of your sins. If you haven't done that and you're ready to do that tonight, there's no better time that you could do that than now. And if your sin has been paid in full, but there's some sin that you have not been repentant of, that you need to weep over your sin, that you need to have godly sorrow for the things that give God sorrow. And we'd be glad to help you with that and pray with you and for you. If you have a public need tonight, please meet me down front and we'll address your need in any way that we can. Come now as we sing.